welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabia, and this is my co-host Morgan. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about James Cameron's Avatar, the 2009 movie which everyone was super wild about for about six months and then basically vanished into nothingness. So we decided to revisit this because James Cameron has just announced that he's going to make four sequels, which he's kind of been announcing for a while now. He's been talking about planned sequels for several years and they've never come to fruition. They've always been in progress and their release date's been pushed back and back. But recently, because it was in the news, we were like, shall we revisit this film? Um, we were kind of curious to see how it looked through modern eyes in 2016, because obviously there's been a lot of changes happened in Hollywood filmmaking in the past six years. And also kind of this film was so critically acclaimed at the time, and we both remember it being absolutely terrible. So we're interested to see how that goes as well. So what we did first is we actually recorded kind of a summary of what we could remember from six years ago. And we're going to compare that to what we think now and then take a look at some of the things that we discovered after rewatching the film, such as the fact that James Cameron is clearly a furry uh, <laughs> and a lot of really quite strange Iraq war subtext that's going on there. So I'm just going to leave you with the clip of our little prequel that we recorded last week and we'll be back to you in a couple of minutes. So we're going to try and summarize what we think happens in Avatar. Both of us saw this film when it came out in 2009. And I think it's safe to say that we both have quite good memories for narrative. We're both also very into films. And at the time, this movie was very widely discussed. The question is, before we rewatch the film, how much can we remember, if anything? <laughs> Morgan, would you like to begin? Okay. I think the, the basic plot, I think, is okay. It's the specifics, I suspect, will be more difficult. So Sam Worthington uh, names are going to be are going to be gone. There are oh, no there's names. no way any of these people have names. Yeah. So Sam Worthington is on some like military mission to a foreign planet with uh, Sigourney Weaver and the guy with the gray hair whose name I've forgotten and also Michelle Rodriguez to mine their unobtainium. <laughs> that is the central conceit of the film, as I recall. And uh, the question for me is why Sam Worthington is on the mission, because the key thing about his character is that he is paraplegic. So I don't know why he's on the mission. Maybe he's the is chosen he paraplegic one. paraplegic at the beginning? I guess we'll find out. <laughs> I don't think so. I have no, I have no idea. Okay. I don't, I don't think he is the I beginning. Think we can, I think we can skip that section then. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, so they go to mine the unobtainium, and the Nobby are there, and I remember that they commune with the animals and plants and stuff by, like, having weird, like, they hair tails. They plug their things. ponytails. They plug their yeah. ponytails into stuff. But, like, they do... This is the one thing I remember, because it was, like, weird and perverted. They plug their ponytail into their pterodactyls and stuff to, like, commune with them psychically. But also, when they bang, they, like, plug their ponytails into each other. Yes. Which is, so like... Which is a scene that they filmed, but didn't include in the movie. Because I remember at the time, my friends and I were all talking about it, like, what the fuck? <laughs> Yes, yes. And but that's then, what I want for the sequel. I want in the sequel for Sam Worthington's character to have really serious body dysphoria because he has spent his whole life being just a guy and now he's this eight foot tall blue ponytail fucker. 
for the rest of his life. So he must be paraplegic at the beginning. Because then they go and, like, somehow can take, like, put their brains into the bodies of these Navi people. It's no but, less or more plausible than Inception, so I will accept that as a concept. Right, but my question is, where did the bodies come from? Who, who Whose bodies are these that they are? Either they built them in a tank, or they've stolen some corpses, which is <laughs> extremely in keeping with general American military colonialism. So I think that would actually be quite a good conceit for this, especially if, he, if he's living in someone's corpse for the rest of the franchise. But I don't remember. He meets the girl. Zoe Saldana who yes. is a blue lady, falls in love with her. And I guess he's infiltrating them? Is he infiltrating them? Is he oh acting? God. Is he is like one that? of the cops that goes undercover with protesters? I believe he is. I believe oh my God, he he's a narc. He's a narc. <sighs> and, but then he falls in love with her and realizes that actually, so the Navi are trying to protect their unobtainium tree, which is like Grandmother Willow. As I, recall, <laughs> I think it's, it's just like the talk. world tree. It's their religious. Yeah. So it's not actually got anything to do with the Unobtainium. I think only the Earthlings care about Unobtainium. I think the people who live on the planet are just like, we love the tree because it's our god. And it, it, but I think that that's where the Unobtainium is. Okay. So that's why, so that the, the Americans are trying to, to rip it up because that's where the Unobtainium is. Yeah. And then at some point, Sam Worthington realizes that actually what he's doing is wrong. But he is uniquely qualified to fight the humans because he's so good at flying on a pterodactyl or something because he is Kevin Costner in Dances with Wolves. And then there's a fight and someone defeats a robot by throwing a spear through it. <laughs> well, the fight at the end lasts for like an hour. It's oh, like God. Three hours and it lasts for like a solid hour. So get ready to watch this because I was literally sitting there like slumped down in my seat being like, when will this end? Michelle Rodriguez flies a helicopter, and she's, she's the best character in the movie. She's they definitely should the best do character. a movie where it's like her and the guy who was also in Inception that year, Dilly Brow, who was in like the yes. two highest grossing movies ever, and then never did another film. So he has like the highest grossing average in the world or something. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and so she like decides that Sam Worthington. And the Navi people are like, right. And so she winds up helping them out. And then the silver haired guy who's named Steven something, the actor, obviously not the character. I can't remember. All I know is that he really wants to play Cable in Deadpool 2. <laughs> so he is like evil. And I don't remember anything about what Sigourney Weaver does at all. I just know that she's in the film. She is in it. I feel but like, I do we even need to rewatch it? We've definitely summarized that whole plot. Yeah. I'm excited to see what insights we've discovered when we end, put ourselves through this again. Oh, the reason that they have to be in the Navi bodies is because they can't breathe the air. Oh my god, and there's a reason! The, and then at the end, he winds up making the full transition. Yeah. because I remember that part, because I was like, that's... Because there's a weird shot where she's, like, cradling his human body, and she's, like, twice as big as he is, and it's pretty weird. And I like that, like, because it's weird. He, like, makes the jump into being a Navi forever. Yeah. And now no one will ever see Sam Worthington's face in a film. Possibly Sam Worthington was, like, generated in one of the vats where they create the fake Navi bodies. <laughs> if that's a thing. We don't... Yeah. Unless don't they know. reuse corpses, which I really hope is what they do. Well, we're going to find out 
you, our listeners, will find out in a matter of seconds what our opinion was. <laughs> so give it a moment and we'll be back. Godspeed. <laughs> well, I think we got uh, more of that right than I was expecting to, frankly. <laughs> the only thing we got, I guess, meaningfully wrong, or that I got meaningfully wrong, you remember this correctly, was uh, the fact that Sam Worthington, whose name is Jake in the movie, Jake Scully, which they say like a million times. It's not even Jake Scully, it's Jake Sully. Jake Sully. So actually, I didn't remember it the second time. Jake something um, is a paraplegic, which had completely vanished from my brain. But is actually an incredibly important plot detail because he's a paraplegic, and the reason he goes on the mission is that they have, in fact, built Nobby bodies. They did not use corpses. And they build them using the people's DNA, which is how they link to them, and his twin brother was supposed to go and then died. And I have already forgotten the circumstances of his death. I think his, brother, old... his brother was some kind of academic. The idea is that they're using kind of anthropologists and scientists to go and meet with the Navi people and try and get in with them and be diplomatic. So they need these Navi bodies. Jake Sully's brother was some kind of scientist. And Jake is a Marine who is brought in to replace him because they have the same DNA. Which, like, is a really interesting premise, because the whole twin thing is cool, you know, it's an emotional, heartfelt idea. And then the thing with the Navi bodies is incredibly fucked up, because I feel like that is the pinnacle of the Uncanny Valley. You're like, we need to be diplomatic with this alien species that clearly is not happy with us invading their planet, so why don't we show up in fake flesh corpses of their brethren? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's not a good strategy, it's really weird. Like, from our perspective, like, if we were the Navi... It would be these aliens showing up disguised as humans, like pod people. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a horror movie. No one movie. wants that. No one wants that. And I don't think James Cameron has any idea that that's what he's made, which is going to be a theme of the podcast today. Things that James Cameron did without realizing that he yes. did this. But yeah, so basic, basic plot summary of things that we had forgotten uh, so Sigourney Weaver is the head scientist, essentially, on this mission. And her interest is in learning about this planet and talking to the Navi. And Giovanni Ribisi, whose presence I had completely 100% forgotten, is the head kind of like... He's the business guy. guy. Yeah, who wants to get all the unobtainium <coughs> out of <laughs> the ground. And he doesn't care about destroying the navi's homes or indeed them or whatever so they're kind of these twin poles and then jake is operating between them and initially he's giving information to giovanni rabisi and the sort of bad guys and ultimately sort of defects to the science camp because he realizes that what he's been doing is wrong yeah he's and also he's won over by the power of love because he's fallen in love with natiri which is the female navi character it's really incredible because the uh, the scientist anthropologist side are kind of portrayed like they're the good option compared to the bad option of the evil corporate overlords. Obviously, they're only there as like an arm of the evil corporate overlords in the first place. But also the stuff they're doing is like, oh, they run a school. The Navi do not need humans to teach them in a school. What are you doing <laughs> in a school? It's an amazing colonialization thing, which I realize is a purposeful part of the film. That's part of the message that James Cameron was intending to include, but it's really 
weirdly poorly thought out for such a huge big budget film that he was working on for over a decade. Well, right. They just, the sort of level of how does this culture actually feel about these people coming in and how are they interacting with them? Like, obviously they don't want them there. That's fairly straightforward and obvious, but beyond that obvious first step, there has been no thought. I mean, maybe he has given him a lot of thought. Clearly the amount of thought he's given to this world is endless beyond our comprehension, but it doesn't come across at all. And so it's sort of just like, what's happening? Like what, what, why do they even put up with this? So Jake winds up sort of being quasi adopted by this tribe, which is how he, spends this much time with Neytiri and how they fall in love. And I think as we were discussing, clearly the motivation for them to let him in is because they're terrified of being annihilated and are hoping that, you know, doing this will ameliorate the situation somewhat. But the film doesn't actually, like, depict that. It's just kind of like, okay, you can stay and learn from us, I guess. You can become a warrior. It's like, what? Like, I mean, this is the the main thing that people remarked upon when the film came out. Like, at that point, I was still in college. I wasn't really paying attention to film criticism. But the one thing I do remember seeing a lot in discussions about this film was the fact that it's just such a cliche of the kind of white saviour hero story. He does indeed tame a dragon and becomes a saviour messiah hero of the Navi. And it's why? What is the reason? <laughs> well, the amazing, the perhaps the most amazing moment in the film is when he gives a rousing speech to all the Navi who have been displaced by the Americans destroying their home based on information that he has given the Americans about how to destroy their home. And he basically says like, we're not going to let those people come in and do this to us. And it's like you. And he's saying it through an interpreter as well, which is amazing. He's saying it through his girlfriend's ex-boyfriend who was like betrothed to be married to her. But yeah, the thing about him basically selling out the Navi, I had completely forgotten. So like the final battle scene is about the human business people who are searching for the Unobtainium, trying to destroy the world tree, which is the city and also the spiritual hub of the Navi culture. The reason the humans even know how to do that is because Jake has given them really detailed internal structural plans of how to blow up the tree. So like the whole genocide of the film is entirely Jake's fault. And like he does express some remorse for it, but it kind of gets dropped. So this is a franchise where every future film is going to be like predicated on the idea of the hero actually just having led to the whole problem. And it doesn't really acknowledge that. (laughs) No, not at all. There's there's a lot going on, Um, but we should give some some contextual background for the film itself, which obviously is. I imagine most people listening to this know was a huge phenomenon in 2009 and I believe remains the top grossing movie of all time. Its total box office was $2.7 billion, which still, I, it's so hard to wrap your mind around that. Like that is just so nuts. Partly this was because like they were selling at that point, very expensive IMAX tickets, but people were seeing this movie like six or seven times. There were all these think pieces about how people were having mental health problems because they were so obsessed with Pandora. <laughs> and they were, you know, people were getting, you know, what was it like Pandora sickness or something, Avatar sickness, where they were feeling sad because they couldn't go back to Pandora. And it's like, 
what is wrong with you? <laughs> and I say this as like a truth obsessive who gets really, really into films. And I definitely have become hugely over-invested <laughs> in, in movies. But like, it, what? What was going on in 2009? It's incomprehensible to me. I don't understand. Having watched, I mean, it was such a sacrifice for me to watch this movie a second time six years later. Like, the idea of going over and over again in the span of two months or whatever is just like, how? It's almost three hours long. It's so long. It's so long. I mentioned this in the little uh, clip and then also last week, but I remember going to see this when it came out on over like Christmas break home from school and I went with my friend and we made the incredibly intelligent decision of double billing this and the fine Daniel Day-Lewis film Nine, <laughs> which everyone thought was going to get nominated for Oscars that year. It did not. And we saw this first and we were just like, this is unbearable. Like This is so bad. And then went to see Nine, which was also terrible. And we were just like, what's going on? Like, it was just it was completely a nightmare. And then it went on to make just like a gazillion dollars, which nobody had been anticipating. This was in pre-production at Fox for years and years and years. I highly recommend checking out the Wikipedia page to <laughs> find the details of this because it's just amazing they threatened to drop it i think a number of times because he had just been working on it for so long just burning through money um and then everyone kind of thought i think that it wasn't going to make a ton of money just because it was so weird and then obviously that is not what wound up happening um but it was a hugely expensive too um i think i have the numbers here it was a Officially cost $237 million, but possibly was between $280 and $310 million. And then also it was $150 million for promotion, which even in this era of like huge blockbuster films, that is a fuckload of money. <laughs> like, oh my God. But what's so odd is that this all happened and it was so crazy. And then the movie vanished. Yeah. I mean, like, that's, that's gone. the reason why we recorded this little segment at the beginning, because um, there's like a really popular viral tweet that's been going around where it's kind of a joke along the lines of Avatar is the highest grossing movie of all time. Everyone in the world saw it. Can you remember the name of the main character or something? You know, it's vanished from the public consciousness. There's films that had far smaller audiences and like apparently less cultural impact at the time, which are still lingering on. But there just simply aren't a legion of Avatar fans out there. Well, I remember... One of the things that I sort of like remembered today, we watched the film a few days ago and I've been thinking about it and I only remember today that one of the things that everyone was freaked out about at the time was that this was going to be the future of acting. So if you are one of the three people listening to this generously who has not seen Avatar, um, it's almost all done through motion capture, right? Because they're obviously inhabiting the bodies of these alien beings so it was all shot on a soundstage and then green screened and they did a kind of more advanced version of what the lord of the rings did with Gollum, which now has also been done with some other films like planet of the apes but it's with basically all the actors in maybe like two-thirds of the scenes you say like there's some stuff obviously yeah. it was just and so I think James Cameron was basically saying, like, this is how all acting should be in the future. And everyone was, like, having a meltdown because they were like, 
I mean, obviously. Oh my God, like this is, no, this is bad. And needless to say, this has not happened. (laughs) It's it's useful for certain things where it's appropriate, like Planet of the Apes, but it's a selective thing. It's not usually useful. But there really was a panic about this kind of taking over. And um, it so didn't materialize. And it was interesting watching it now six years down the line because the effects in Avatar were the thing that everyone was talking about at the time. Obviously, that's not the only reason it was popular. If it were, it would not have made the amount of money that it did. But the scope of them is truly impressive. I mean, almost everything in the film is CGI. But it has not aged that well on that front. Part of that is just you have to be sort of forgiving of because effects do change over time. We get better at stuff, but it really doesn't look so great. It's not, it's not, they didn't make great choices with the design. And then that contributed to the VFX thing. And uh, I said to you, I think when we were watching that I still, in the movies I've seen, I don't think I've seen a motion capture character that worked as well as Gollum. And that was in, 2001 to 2003. Yeah, I mean, I kept thinking about Gollum when I saw the new Star Wars film last year, because obviously Andy Serkis is playing Supreme Leader Snoke, who is the big hologram character. Obviously, like a huge proportion of the new Star Wars film is CGI, even though they marketed it a lot as live action effects. But Snoke is facial capture with uh, Andy Serkis. And like, he really isn't good. Like, I found it quite distracting. Yeah. And like with Avatar, I know that when it came out, I was fine with visual effects. I thought it looked good. I thought it looked kind of pretty, if not enormously interesting. But like it hasn't aged well. And I think I'm not someone who scoffs at dated special effects because, you know, I love Star Trek. I can watch any (laughs) number of old sci-fi and fantasy movies and be completely unbothered by it. And I don't even feel like the Uncanny Valley was a particular problem with this film because they weren't attempting to directly imitate humans. So it was okay. Um, the main things that I had a problem with were just the general art design, which I think we're going to talk about in a moment. And the fact that there's such a huge difference between when they're filming live action stuff with just the humans in the army base, which just looks like every single generic sci-fi military base ever in any film. And then they have this huge transition over to the Navi planet, which is like, it's the same planet, but like as soon as you have those two things... They just don't feel like they're in the same film. And I just find that really distracting and it didn't work at all. I agree. And I actually do think that there's the uncanny valley thing. I don't think applies so much with the animals. I think that that's more just the design isn't great and they don't really look real, which you kind of have to, again, be like, okay, this was made a while ago. Um, But I think that with the Navi, there's a huge uncanny valley problem. And that has a lot to do with, the design which we can now discuss so oh my god (laughs) we were watching this and we were just like we could not believe there's so there's so much there's so much wrong here from a film criticism perspective this movie was really interesting because it's the first time i also can remember seeing like the think piece cycle work on a movie because like when this first came out everyone was just like oh my god this is amazing like look at all the stuff that he did and like what he achieved with this film. And then as we got closer to the Oscars, there started to be a backlash. And then it was just like a cycle we now see a lot, but at the time, at least in terms of like the online film criticism world, 
I don't think was as common. But I do remember seeing stuff of like people saying these bodies don't make any biological sense. And it's a fantasy, right? It, it doesn't really matter. But because they're humanoid, like they're just sort of elongated and their waists are very skinny and they just look weird, but also impossible. Um, and then to do with the visual effects stuff and the motion capture, they've made their skin incredibly smooth. And so they don't really have any wrinkles on their faces or anywhere else on their body, which means that in terms of the of the expressions that they are capable of conveying, there's not a lot going on there. And I think yeah, that's why I mean, it's far closer, so well, right? Like, because there's so much like texture and they are just these sort of like weird shiny beings with like weird long limbs. <laughs> it's just like, what? I didn't even have that much of a problem because I, I don't mind if biology doesn't make sense. I don't think the the way they designed them with the, all the elongated limbs was very well thought out, but I don't really care. You know, I can watch a fantasy movie where every single character is just completely biological nonsense and it doesn't matter to me. But like, artistically, it was far less um, beautiful and original than I kind of remembered or was expecting. The whole jungle aesthetic really just looks like a kind of late 90s children's PlayStation game when you're watching on the small screen. It is far less imaginative than I was remembering. Like, there's so many fantasy movies that have such interesting and innovative design. Like, obviously, every Del Toro movie is more visually interesting than this, by far. Pacific Rim is very much in the same wheelhouse as this film because it's a mainstream blockbuster. It draws very heavily from a lot of different popular sci-fi genres. Like, it follows, I guess, somewhat cliched plot structure but it's better in almost every way, like including aesthetically. Yeah, and I was thinking too of Lord of the Rings actually um, in this sort of like the Navi all live in this big tree and it's supposed to, I think, look really cool and like there are things in the forest that kind of light up at night, which actually is pretty neat. But I was thinking of the design of Lothlorien in the first Lord of the Rings movie, which it's not directly similar because that is, I think, supposed to look more... Um, like sort of traditionally Western civilization, but it evoked that for me. And I was like, that's just so much better. Yeah. <laughs> it just looks so much cooler. And I saw that film recently again, and that was 15 years ago and it has aged really well. Like the design all looks, it's fine. Like it's going to, it's going to age just in perpetuity. Like they just did a good job, not making it look like it was from 2001. Like they, the structures just look like they're from some other era and all the design stuff in Avatar. I remember actually thinking this at the time, but it was striking to see it again. It's just kind of garish. The colors are just like, it's just very bright and not that original. And I mean, I imagine the brightness was toned down somewhat by being 3d. And I think probably it's a lot better on the big screen, but this is the reason, one of the reasons why it's not stuck around on home video like Star Wars does. Cause you know, Star Wars looks good. Yeah, and I watched it on my, I have a pretty big, really nice television, and it didn't look, like, the quality of it was fine, but if you have a film where so much of the experience is predicated on it being in a theater, which I don't think is inherently a bad thing, I've seen some films where I've thought this definitely, that I've loved, that I thought this definitely wouldn't work as well on a small screen, but that is going to be a problem in terms of this lifespan, right? Because I just don't know how you would show this movie to a little kid. I mean, I mean I'm sure it's, it's three hours fine. long. I'm sure it's like a 12 year old say, like, I'm sure there are 12 year olds who would be like, Oh yeah, it's entertaining. But compared to star Wars, like they're going to love star Wars. And this would be, eh. 
Like, I mean, this is my speculation. I obviously cannot speak for 12-year-olds, but it just, I, I can't fathom it being that gripping, particularly because the emotional storyline is just like, whatever, who cares? Like, the characters are so flat. The romance is completely uncompelling. Oh my god, I... Sam Worthington's accent. <laughs> so actually, oh can we just, like, god. we'll get back to character design in a minute, because I, we both have some real questions yeah. about the Navi there's, design. There's more. But with Sam Worthington, this is just, it was just fascinating from, like, almost the instant he showed up on screen, because most of the exposition in this film is just pure voiceover. The first 10 to 15 minutes of the film are almost all just Sam Worthington doing a voiceover explaining what's going on. Which, I mean, is a bit dodgy at the best of times, but I'll allow. But, like, he cannot do an American accent. And I usually don't notice bad accents, but he is Australian, and he sounds Australian consistently almost all the way through the film. I can't understand why they hired Sam Worthington to make this film. Because he's not, like, a particularly great actor who can't do an accent. He's, like, a mediocre actor who can't do an accent. And clearly they wanted someone cheap, because they wanted to cut down on paying for actors. But, like, I think James Cameron said that he was looking for someone who had this really natural quality and this human charm and he seems like an everyman. And he ended up with Sam Worthington, who is really bad. <laughs> like, he does not have redeeming features. No, he is I mean, bad. he seems like a nice man, but... Right, I mean, I have not—I know nothing about Sam Worthington as a human being. He could be the nicest man on the planet, I don't know. But he has, no, he has one expression. One. And it's the same throughout the film, except when he smiles, like, three times. And... His, he sounds Australian. It's so baffling. It's so confusing. They did a worldwide talent hunt to find the protagonist of this movie. And if you even think about how many low-level TV actors there are in LA and Vancouver who would be like, they would slit each other's throats to be in a James Cameron movie. Right. And they ended up finding Sam Worthington. And how? And he keeps, and now he's in movies all the time. And they're always dull. Part of me wonders whether on some level... James Cameron didn't want someone who was going to detract from the spectacle of what he had created on Pandora. Like, that's the only explanation I could come up with. Not even consciously, but, like, clearly what he is interested in with this movie was the world that he had created. He spent years dreaming up all this stuff. He's spent years since continuing to dream up all of this stuff. The story is so half-baked. I think he just wants to make... I mean, how did you explain what he wants to be doing? I think he wants to make, there's these encyclopedias you get for like tabletop games where it just describes all the characters and background detail in like agonizing detail. And I think that's what he wants to be doing. He wants to yeah. be making 3D virtual reality exploration games where you touch a plant and it gives you like an encyclopedia entry for the plant. That's yes. what he wants to be doing. Right. And instead he had to make this film. So he was like, oh, I guess I'll fart out some plot line. <laughs> like, yes. As everyone joked at the time, it's the same story as Pocahontas. Dances with wolves. Yeah. And another Zoe Saldana, who had the really thrilling job of being a naked woman in this movie. She's so much more naked than I remembered. And oh, I remembered her being naked. My but... God. <laughs> so we were watching this and we were just like screaming the whole time about this issue so like i remember seeing this and i remember like ranting to people about all the colonialism stuff which we've talked about a little and we'll talk about more and i thought it was sexist because her whole function is basically to just be like i will teach you things and then fall in love with you and whatever but i absolutely 
do not remember grasping the extent of like how bad this element is. It's yeah, so me neither. I definitely picked up on the colonialism stuff, and I can't remember if I even had an opinion on whether it was sexist or not. I think I was. I mean, I think I really liked Michelle Rodriguez, and that was enough. I did not remember the fact that like she is super naked. All the Navi are naked, and they're designed very much along a way that's clearly just going for earth human beauty standards, really slim people with narrow hips. Um, instead of it being like, they're aliens, so they're completely naked, which I think would have been more acceptable. They're like somewhat naked. So they're wearing thongs and loincloths and stuff. All the female characters are wearing, it's not like a bra, it's like a kind of a necklace thing that they've CGI'd so that it's always slightly hovering over their nipples so they still have their PG rating. Right, it's like these tiny little objects that are just conveniently having to be over their nipples at any point in time. <laughs> and all of her poses are so, it's so male gazy. Like there's so many scenes where she does a pose that it just looks like a, the kind of comic book cover that people complain about looking really dated. You know, she's like stretching all over the screen. What are you doing? Like, this is so unnecessary. <laughs> I mean, I think I literally said early on, I was like, does she have nipples? Because I can't tell what the fuck is going on. And then it, we rapidly became clear that they were very carefully covering them up with like one feather. And the good news else. is, the good news is, Morgan, that after you asked that, I googled, do the Navi have nipples, which is now on my internet search history forever. And I found an answer. I found an answer direct from the horse's mouth of James Cameron when he was interviewed by none other than Playboy. Oh my god. So, oh my god. <laughs> so this interview comes, there's two quotes I want to read you in this Playboy interview, which goes on for quite a while, so I'm just selecting the best two parts. Okay, he describes Zoe Saldana's character as a classification above hot, which is smoking hot. And then Playboy asks him, do you have any erotic icons from your teenage years that inspired Zoe Saldana's character? And James Cameron says, as a young kid, when I saw Raquel Welsh in the skin-tight white latex suit from Fantastic Voyage, that's all she wrote. Also, Vampirella was so hot, I used to buy every comic I could get her hands on. And he says, when you see something that reflects your id, it works for you. And Playboy asks, so Saldana's character was specifically designed to appeal to guys' ids? And Cameron says, they wouldn't be able to control themselves. They will have actual lust for a character that consists of pixels of ones and zeros. You're never going to meet her, and if you did, she's 10 feet tall and will snap your spine. The point is, 99.9% .9 of people are not going to meet any of the movie actresses they fall in love with, so it doesn't matter if they're Neytiri or Michelle Pfeiffer. Which is like, okay, I, I get that. But then we get to the point Playboy asks him, how much did you get into calibrating your movie heroine's hotness? And Cameron says, right from the beginning I said, she's got to have tits. <laughs> Even though that makes no sense because her race, the Navi, aren't placental animals. I designed her costumes based on a taparabo, a loincloth thing worn by the Mayan Indians. We go to another planet in this movie, so it would be stupid if she ran around in a Brazilian thong or a fur bikini like Raquel Welch in One Million Years BC. Playboy us. Are her breasts on view? Cameron, I came up with this free-floating lion's mane like a ray of feathers, and we strategically lit and angled the shots so as not to draw attention to her breasts, but they're right there. The animation uses a physics-based sim that takes into consideration gravity, air movement, and the momentum of her hair and her top. We had a shot where Neytiri falls into a specific position, and because she is lit by orange firelight, it lights up the nipples. That was good, except we're going for a PG-13 rating, so we wound up having to fix it. We'll have to put it on the special edition DVD. It will be a collector's item. And Neytiri Playboy Centerfold would have been a good idea. <laughs> oh my god, I wish you could all see the look on my face right now. 
it keeps going as well like this interview we'll link to it in the show notes but like this interview oh, is long my God. And... i am i am speechless i don't know what to say i i don't i am <laughs> i mean i know what to say james cameron has been married five times yes he has yes he has Whoa, what i i literally am just sitting here like my mind is just spinning what kind <laughs> i mean it just really strongly reminds me of video game designer interviews there's so much controversy of how female characters are designed and depicted in video games there are so many like running jokes about games that have took so much time and energy into making sure that like, lara croft's boobs bounce around right i mean obviously not lara croft anymore because she's had a bit of a modern revamp but yeah it's just like that and it's like you have focused on the wrong things you've spent so much time and energy putting what you think is completely necessary work into making sure that the aliens unnecessary boobs are like properly covered <laughs> but properly moving around and it's like you forgot to write a story that works all of the dialogue is terrible and you cast a man who can't do an american accent like what, is, <laughs> what are your priorities <laughs> good so it is all fine oh my god i yeah what a man what a fascinating individual he is Ooh. okay well yeah i mean we kept talking watching it about like so, do we think James Cameron understands what he did there? No. No, he definitely doesn't. That? Nope. Nope. And, like, of course, we are wildly speculating. Like, we don't know James Cameron. We don't know what his thought processes were making this film. But aside from the weird stuff with the women that I had not remembered as clearly, the other big thing about this movie that everyone started to complain about after the sort of, you know, brouhaha over it being so great sort of ended um was how unbelievably colonialist it is which i had recalled because that was my main gripe with it but watching it again was like amazing there's so much there's just so much going on and what's fascinating about that is that clearly what he's trying to do is make that critique and, and also sort of comment on environmentalism right like they're ripping the stuff up out of the ground and that's bad but while making the sort of colonialist imperialist critique, he's also enacting those tropes. And so it's just this bizarre sort of like mindfuck of like, what is going on in your head? And also in this film, like it just doesn't make any sense. We I kind mean, of at the time, definitely it. people were taking, um, like people were really identifying with the, kind of anti-military industrial complex message which like i definitely i definitely see where they're coming from like that is kind of the message of the film because the villains are very clearly this um like kind of semi-military hired agency who are just terrible and they're you know they're hired by a company to ruin the lives of the native population and tear up all these beautiful trees and ruin nature and meanwhile the navi know the best way to live and jake sully finally understands that by the end of the film but like you said they're definitely enacting this white savior thing as well. Before we started recording today, um, I actually read Roger Ebert's review of Avatar, which was full four out of four stars, really positive. Like the things that he brought out, he compared it to Star Wars. He loved all of the world building and the visual effects. He thought they were stunning. He was like, this is a new era of filmmaking. He was really impressed by James Cameron. And he also bought into the um, message of ecology and 
anti-imperialism, which like a lot of reviewers did at the time and people on a personal level really identified with because there were so many people who were going into this kind of Pandora state where they were, I wish I could live in Pandora, this is the best way to live, if only we could be more in touch with nature. And it's like the film completely fucked up that message. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just that the military are bad, it's the whole reason why anyone went to Pandora was bad. All the humans right. in the film are bad. There isn't a good one. They're all terrible. <laughs> right. Well, I think you pointed out when we were watching this, there's a fascinating moment where, so Giovanni Ravisi is pushed, they're having a big fight nearer to the end about what to do about the unobtainium deposit under the tree. And Giovanni Ravisi is saying, like, we're going to go get it. We're going to go get it. And Sigourney Weaver has figured out something about how all the trees are connected to each other, whatever, whatever, it doesn't matter. And she says to him, it's not about the entertainium. The real wealth of the planet is in what's like on the earth, not what's inside of it. And like you said, like, even they are describing this in terms of wealth, right? It's not, we should just leave these people alone and let them be. It's like, there's stuff here that we can mine literally or metaphorically for our own benefit. And she is definitely presented as like a good person with, you know, good motives, but the whole enterprise is just so tainted. And these indigenous people, the film represents them in such a patronizing way. And I said too, like, I just can't imagine being a white person and having the gall to make this movie. Like I, it literally, I can't, even get my mind to that place if you are that person then that kind of informs our reading of the movie right like clearly he's just like well i can take all of these various things from these various cultures and like stick them into this made-up thing that i did like, and even like the music like they oh have... my god like it really is this like mishmash of like native stuff that he just put all into one box and rattled it around, and then out came the Navi. And it's so overly simplified, particularly because their actual society is not really explained. There's a lot of cool rituals that mostly are to do with fucking a dragon. So it's like... <laughs> oh my god, the dragon! We must discuss <laughs> I just realized we've not mentioned the dragon yet. Oh. But yeah, I just kept thinking while we were watching this that it feels like someone had spent $300 million on making a 1970s shitty pulp fantasy novel. Because there's so many of these semi-pornographic books about that are just all very painted by numbers and they all have really lurid covers. And they're kind of funny to read and they'll always have like one really specific kink where you're like, okay, I see the real reason why you wrote this book. <laughs> and in this case, it's you have created these aliens who obviously they're really clearly kind of there's a lot of weird racial subtext going on in every aspect of the Navi world building. But also, like, <laughs> he's definitely a furry, right? He's oh, made these God. blue, naked, supermodel cats that have these <laughs> special ponytails, which is the worst piece of evolutionary character design. Like, I'm not bothered about minor details, like their limbs are too long, but they have this psychic spinal cortex thing that comes out of their ponytails. And their ponytails are like 
four feet long or something. So, yeah. like, that is the easiest thing to chop off ever. <laughs> and you would just murder them. You don't see what would happen if you cut off a Navi's ponytail, but it would be terrible because it's got yeah. their psychic tendrils in it. This is a really major part of the film. Like we mentioned in the clip at the beginning, I remember this because there was interviews he did about, like, they discussed a sex scene where the two characters would actually plug their ponytails into each other, but they decided not to keep that in the film in the end. Maybe it's on the DVD, I don't know. But, like, every aspect of that in the film was super weird. Because it is depicted in, like, a kind of somewhat sexual fashion. Quite right? sexual. I would even go to, I would go to quite. I would quite go that sexual. Because <laughs> they have like a close up of his eyes dilating when he plugs himself into his horse. <sighs> and then the dragon thing, where at that point, I think Morgan was just like dying. I was losing my mind. So one of the like rituals on his way to becoming a man in the Navi tribe, which is what oh. like half the movie is. Yeah, no comment. Um, is that he has to like tame one of these pterodactyl dragon things. Um, and Neytiri says to him, like, part of this is that, like, you choose it, it, it chooses you, and presents this as this, like, bond. But what actually happens is not that at all. It's that he, like, grabs this thing and then essentially, like, ponytail rapes it. Like, it was just unbelievable. And it, it goes on for, like, a minute. <laughs> unbelievable. We were just, I, I couldn't. He's like, he's like straddling this dragon and like (laughs) wrestling it into submission so he can plug his ponytail in while his girlfriend and like a couple of guys watch being like, yeah, you can do it. Once he gets it in, it just becomes docile. And I'm like, this animal has not chosen you. This is not a holy ritual. This is really creepy. Weird. And I think, and the thing with the dragon is the reason why when this film came out, the main thing I always remember about Avatar is at the time I was like, why didn't they just make a Dinotopia movie? (laughs) (laughs) Which Morgan, I was like, I told this to Morgan and she was like, I have not read that. Uh, But for those who don't know, Dinotopia, I would strongly recommend them. There are a series of illustrated children's books. They're mostly paintings um, by an artist named James Gurney. And they're about a um, Victorian scientist or explorer or some kind of some kind. And uh, his son, who's about 12 or 13, who are shipwrecked on this island, which is populated by dinosaurs and international shipwrecked people. So it's a culture, it's like a multicultural society that's been built up just by people who've washed up on the beach in dribs and drabs. And, you know, they learn dinosaur languages, the dinosaurs are intelligent, they form bonds with them, they have, you know, and the whole thing is just world building. It's just kind of like diagrams and like a very basic story about them exploring the island. But like this story also draws from these kind of colonialist ideas, because obviously it's about a Victorian explorer, but it kind of subverts them. And it also has this message of communing with nature. And it also has this young male hero who ends up... um, bonding with this pterodactyl dragon thing. And in that, it's like really nice and everyone is good to animals and good to dinosaurs. And it feels like a constructive relationship with nature. (laughs) Whereas like in Avatar, you have lots of scenes where Neytiri is humanely killing animals to eat or communing with nature or whatever. And then you have the weird dragon rape ritual. And then you have like an hour of explosions at the end. And then at the end of the film, it just ends. And you're like, oh, it's over now. Everything's fine. Well, yeah, at the end, so he... They have this big fight against all the American quasi-military guys, and they wind up killing the sort of main bad guy who's played by Stephen Lang, and it's all very victorious, whatever. But then all of the like military-industrial com- complex guys just leave. And you're like, what? That's I mean, clearly the sequels will go into this, but 
it's just sort of comical because like, <laughs> there's no actual logical reason despite this battle having gone the wrong way that the Americans would just be like well I guess we're gonna go now like when in American military history has that ever happened also it's like I'm reasonably sure that it takes a long time for them to transfer information back to earth I don't think they have instantaneous email or anything they have to wait like weeks to hear back so the two leaders on the human base are the military leader who's obviously dead now and who was clearly meant to be a psycho um, and then uh, Giovanni Rubisi's character, who I actually can't remember if he dies or not. Um, no, he doesn't. Okay. But they would be in charge and people would just have to say what they do. And it's no laughing matter to pack up a gigantic interstellar base and just leave the planet. So it's like, <laughs> it is such a ludicrous ending. It is so tacked on. And it it has so many question marks for the sequels, you know, because it, it feels when you combine the really long runtime with the total lack of plot, it feels like a overly long shitty pilot episode of a tv series right so yeah. you've got the basic world building down but you've not got to the point where they explore anything any further but then obviously you just have this film and there's certainly ways where you could take that film and make it really interesting but it would have to be too dark because this film yes. is aimed at a family audience and you can't have a movie where like jake sully is really fucked up about the fact that he's living the rest of his life in a 12 foot tall blue alien body you can't have a movie where every human is canonically depicted as evil. You can't really do anything with what they left at the end of the film because it doesn't make any rational sense. Yeah, it's not structured as a, like, sequel setup. And he was saying in 2006, according to Wikipedia, that he was planning <laughs> on doing three movies. So it's not like he just did one and then was like, shit, made... $2.7 billion, I guess I gotta come up with another one. Like, he had maniac delusions of grandeur about this being this whole huge thing from, like, the 90s on, right? So... And it worked. People I, loved it. Like, people loved Avatar. So, right. Like, so then what was... I, I'm so confused. I mean, I he wrote himself into a corner, because clearly yeah. the goal of this film was he wanted to explore Pandora. Clearly he was not interested in that from a narrative point of view, because it's very basic and it doesn't tie up properly at the end. Once he's left with that ending, it's going to be really difficult to pick that up. So, like, no wonder he's just kept pushing these films forward over and over again, you know? Endlessly. Endlessly. He has delayed them, or Fox, and he have delayed them five times at this point, which is really spectacular. Like, that's a lot. That's a lot of delays. Uh, and it's now four sequels instead of two. Which he's planning to film all at once. Yes. And then they're supposedly going to release them every one every year starting in 2018. I will believe this when I have a trailer in front of my eyeballs. I mean, but... there is there is actually one reason to feel really optimistic about these films. Um, and uh, this is actually straight from the horse's mouth. This is something that James Cameron said to like assure people <laughs> that these films are going to be good. It's actually one of my favourite quotes from any artist de de um, describing their work ever. And he said, and I quote, describing his future Avatar sequels, you will shit yourself with your mouth wide open. <laughs> Which is one of our favourite things anyone has said i think ever. oh god the number of times i quote this i actually have to ration myself because it's my favorite quote of all time so spectacular you will shit yourself with your mouth wide open <laughs> what does that mean like what 
I mean, that is the kind of self-congratulation that you get from a man who spent $300 million on his cat ponytail fucking movie. Precisely. Precisely. Oh my god. What a, what a human being. Um, so, to sort of wrap this up, I think we're going to do a little bit of Oscar history, which is my favorite thing. <laughs> but it's really interesting in this case and ties in a little bit to what we were talking about with the sort of colonials and stuff and the current events stuff that was going on in 2009 when this movie was released because as many of you may remember this lost best picture in 2010 to the hurt locker which was directed by james cameron's third wife out of five Catherine bigelow one of the true moments of justice at the oscars ever Thank God, thank God this did not win. Oh my God. I just kept thinking, watching it, like this would have been one of the worst Best Picture winners in my sort of time watching the Oscars. Um, But it was a really fascinating year because this movie made, as we keep saying, $2.7 billion worldwide. Uh, The Hurt Locker made $49 million worldwide and only $17 million in the United States. It is one of the lowest grossing best picture films ever. And sort of more interestingly, it is all about soldiers in Iraq. And James Cameron drew some explicit parallels to the war in Iraq and our sort of involvement in the Middle East with Avatar. Which he's definitely critical of. Like, right. the film is, like, staunchly crypt- critical, like, both of kind of, you know, invading places and also, like, mechanized warfare. You know, all of the robots right. are very clearly the bad guys in this movie. Yeah. So there's a quote from him that I found from, like, a screening in early 2010. Um, and he says, this movie reflects that we are living through war. There are boots on the ground, troops who I personally believe were sent there under false pretenses. So I hope this will be part of opening our eyes. I don't know if there is a political agenda exactly, but as an artist, I felt the need to say something about what I saw around me. I think we all need to take stewardship of our planet. So obviously there's an environmentalist message too. But what's so fascinating to me about this is that, like, clearly his intentions are altruistic with this film. But as we keep saying, it doesn't really work. But it made so much money right at the moment when we were getting out of Iraq in late 2009, and then also actually as troops were sort of being pushed into Afghanistan again, the like a year into Obama's presidency. Meanwhile, there's this other little movie about sort of the reality of being a soldier in that war, and it's been criticized by... Um, some veterans for not being accurate in its depiction of um, the sort of bomb diffusion, which is what it's about specifically, but certainly compared to Avatar, it's a little closer to, you know, sort of grounded reality of being over there. And that movie made no money, which is not a surprise, but just sort of like the wild divergence in fate of those two movies is so fascinating to me. I mean, there's another film which I'd actually like to include in this group, which came out in 2010. It was based on a book that came out in 2006, and that's Eat, Pray, Love. (laughs) I was just thinking, because the angle this film obviously takes with the kind of ecologist message is generally, as you said, positive and attempting to have a positive impact on the world and its audience. But it's very much the kind of, I took a gap year in Nepal 
and learnt about spirituality from the local villagers idea. It's not the same as making a film about someone heroically picking up trash in like Mississippi. You know? <laughs> yeah. So it's like it's yeah. very much an escapist fantasy, which isn't necessarily constructive. It's feeding into the positive sensation of knowing that you're thinking the right thing in a film. War is bad, but I don't necessarily need to hate America because the protagonist is ostensibly also American. Um, And also fighting isn't necessarily bad because everyone's fighting against the bad fighters. Yes. It's, oh, it's fucking Doctor Strange all over again, you know? (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, in Avatar, like, it's really violent, that film. Like, so many people die and they just don't show blood. The horse goes in fire. Like a horse on fire in this movie. I was like, the horse is on fire. (laughs) Like, it's quite brutal. But, and like, again, people clearly, and I don't think this is obviously in any way like the sole explanation for why this movie is popular. But I think it also is fair to say that it contributed, that people were so eager to just get the fuck out of that war. And, but at the same time, actual movies about Iraq and Afghanistan we're not making any money. So like, I remember when the Hurt Locker was such a thing that one of the things people were talking about with that film is that it was hugely critically acclaimed and the box office was tiny. So like it made 17 million um, in the domestic box office. I don't remember if they re-released it when it got nominated for best picture, but I bet they did. So I bet that was actually smaller and it's like an initial release, but I would have to check on that. And there were a number of other movies. Like Stop Loss came out and The Valley of Ella came out around that time too. And like these movies just made no money. Like people did not want to see them. They did not want to think about them. They didn't want to think about the war. They just wanted to get the fuck out of there. And it took until like Zero Dark Thirty, Catherine Bigelow's next movie, which is about like killing Osama bin Laden, which is actually a film I loved. It's a different conversation. But you can go into that movie and just be like, yeah, we got him. Like, this is great. And then, of course, American Sniper, which blew the lid off for, like, box office on films on that subject, which is completely uncritical of anything that we were doing over there. I and mean, it's, it's just like, rah, rah. Heard, it's beyond uncritical. Even if you don't want to go that far, like, the movie is just, it, it it's awful. Like, I, and we don't obviously need to get into this, but, like, it is just... It is racist trash. It is so bad. Did have that baby though. Love yes. the fake baby. Oh, love the fake baby. Um, but it's fascinating to me that a film that is so clearly engaging with some of these ideas, but isn't willing to really be that critical, and also that isn't fully what it's about, and it doesn't have to be, was so popular, right? Like this. Clearly, there was some desire within the United States for this message. And of course it also made a ton of money overseas, which is a different thing. Um, But I think the reason we're talking about this is that to me, the primary thing that's interesting about this movie now is that it made this much money at that specific time. Right. Because you watch it and it's kind of just like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) I, I don't think it's good. I don't find it particularly enjoyable to watch, but it is undeniably an interesting cultural artifact. Like anything that made that much money, you have to look at in in that those terms. Like that's a that's a phenomenon. Like it, it was a phenomenon at the time. And I think trying to understand that is kind of fascinating. But um the film itself has not aged well. 
in my opinion. It's not great, which then is going to make those sequels an interesting challenge. What's he going to do about the boobs? I just don't. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Because when you, first of all, like I think if they re-aired this in theaters now, it wouldn't look as good, partly because CGI has moved on slightly since then, and mostly because people are so much more clued in about race issues, but also sexism and costuming and things like that. So I feel like if you showed this movie now, people, especially sci-fi fans who are really into discussing this kind of thing online now, would just be like, what is Zoe Saldana wearing? What isn't she wearing? (laughs) In the sequel, are they going to redesign their outfits? Are they going to keep the outfits? Is someone going to rein in James Cameron? I'm genuinely curious if these films ever come out. I want to know, man. Yeah, it's going to be... Put on some shirts. (laughs) Not to body shame the fake aliens, because they were created by James Cameron to have tits, despite being aliens that are not placental, as he described. Although I think they had belly buttons. It's a mess. It's all a mystery. Oh my god, yeah. However, this has kind of been like a palate cleanser for us this week, right? Because we've watched a really quite stunningly bad, very popular blockbuster movie. And next week, we are going to be discussing something actually good. We we expect. We hope. We are strongly hoping, which is Captain America Civil War, which will truly be the most over-invested we've ever been in the history of this podcast, in the short history. The long history of this podcast, yes. yeah. Get ready for it, people. Morgan and I are so into Captain America, it's honestly just laughable. Yeah. Like, we are both obsessed. We're going to see what the balance is between uh, thoughtful commentary and critique and us shouting... Yeah, like a couple of weeks ago, we were kind of discussing how we were going to frame this episode and we were considering having two episodes and one of them is the sort of emotional episode where we just get all of our feelings out. (laughs) And then the second one is the one where we try to engage our brains a bit more critically. So we'll see how that goes. There's also the issue of... Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's also the issue of I'm going to see the film a week before Morgan does because we get it a week before it in Britain. I am seeing it next weekend, which or next Thursday, actually. So I will not be on the internet for like... A week. A week. But uh, we will be back talking about that next Monday. Okay, so if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to give us a star rating on iTunes, because that's how we find new audiences. Um, And for show notes, go to our website, which is overinvestedpodcast.com. We're on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast and Twitter at Overinvested Pod. Thanks for listening.